Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Senate Republicans block foreign aid funding, leaving Ukraine's survival at stake. I ask its Minister of Strategic Industries what he needs to turn the tide on the battlefield. Then, journalist and director Mstislav Chernov takes us back to one of Putin's first and most brutal assaults on Ukraine with his eyewitness documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. Next, music for the masses, by the masses, my conversation with the award-winning prodigy Jacob Collier on voice layering and cathedrals of sound. Plus, the state of America's higher education. Journalist Michael Powell joins Michelle Martin to discuss cuts to public universities and long-term consequences. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. America's up until now unwavering support for Ukraine is hanging in the balance as Senate Republicans block a move to pass an aid package. Bundled with support for Israel and Taiwan, they've tied the bill to major border security measures. The White House warns funds for Ukraine's defense could run out soon. And with global attention on the Middle East, Kyiv is struggling to plead its case. David Cameron, the former British prime minister turned foreign secretary, is in Washington trying to stress the importance of backing Ukraine for both American and European security. I just absolutely know that this money will make a huge difference to a Ukrainian campaign that actually is in many ways far more successful than people give them credit for. And the worst thing in the world would be to allow Putin a win in Ukraine, not just because uh, that would be bad in itself, but he'd be back for more. But on the battlefield, the feeling of stalemate is settling in as Putin waits and watches, betting on his prediction that American support will wane, betting that time is on his side. My next guest, Alexander Kamishin, began the war running Ukraine's railways as a strategic transport network for the military and humanitarian effort. Now he's Ukraine's Minister for Strategic Industries, and he's joining me from their embassy in Washington, D.C., Welcome to the program, Alexander Kamishin. So you are there as the Senate rejects, for the first time, rejects a major package for you. What difference will that make on the battlefield right now? 
Hi, Christian. Happy to be here. And uh, I'm here to work with my team on the first Defense Industry Base Conference, as we call it, Defense One US Edition, which happened today and uh, which started yesterday and happens today as well. And uh, we are here to work with US defense industry on collaboration with Ukrainian defense industry. Because as we got a strong political signal yesterday from US government, we are working on uh, joint activities, joint projects with US defense industry on the ground in Ukraine. So we are here to work out those solutions that could be produced in Ukraine. And that's how we can strengthen Ukrainian defense industry base. Meanwhile, uh, work well with U.S. partners. So are you disappointed? Because I understand what you're saying, that Ukraine is going to have to build its own defense industry um, if you can't count on your allies. The U.S., you said you got the message that that support, you know, may or may not continue. Do you, do you, are you confident that you'll get support from Europe still? Can it fill the gap on aid, military aid? Uh, Christian, we are fighting the greatest war generations. And in this war, no single country can withstand against Russia alone. So that's why no matter how much we grow our local defense industry base, for sure we would be still reliant on the aid, on the military aid, which we receive from US and other partners. I'm sure that uh, the supplemental would be voted and we will keep receiving the aid. But again, I'm here to promote business to US defense industry, and I'm here to promote joint collaborations we can make with Ukrainian defense industry. How long do you think that will take to actually produce results? Christian, defense, building defense industries always takes years, but we got uh, one of the projects that goes faster. That's what we call Frank and Sam. That's uh, a collaboration uh, between U.S. defense industry, Ukrainian defense industry, U.S. Army, and Ukrainian armed forces, where we take Soviet type of uh, weapons and uh, Western types of missiles, and uh, we make them work together. So that's how we get fast solution for air defense already now in Ukraine. And uh, this framework of projects is developing, and uh, I'm happy that we got fast solutions. Meanwhile, we keep working on long-term solutions that will feed U Ukrainian defense industry and U.S. defense industry strategies in years. Because again, building defense industry takes years. Everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. So we're working on joint production of ammunitions, mainly uh, 155 rounds in Ukraine and uh, in neighbor countries. And that's key priority long term for us. Alexander Commission, did you think at the beginning of this war with so much of the world on your side that it would actually last this long, that you'd be in your second winter where you're going to be worried that there'll be Russia pulverizing and pounding your energy infrastructure again, and that you are in, according to your own military chief, a stalemate? Did you predict this? Christian, uh, for me, it's actually already the third winter uh, in the war. 
And again, uh, no matter how long it takes, we keep standing. And I'm grateful to U.S. partners for helping us withstand for already 652 days in this great war. And again, when the war started, I was running railways. So I've got a task uh, to save people and keep all critical things running on the rails. Meanwhile, we are dealing with defense industry in Ukraine, and I'm focused, sharp focused on building defense industrial base in Ukraine together with U.S. defense industry as a partnership. So again, for me, it's important to build Ukraine as the arsenal of the free world mm -hmm. and uh, with the partnership of U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. And we know that you're not alone. You're with your defense minister. You're with uh, one of the president's key advisors as well. And you're meeting with them to try to figure out how you can do this joint enterprise and stand up your own defense industry in the future. But I guess I want to ask you about what you need most. There's been a very important investigation done by the Washington Post. You may have seen it. And some of the things that they have said is... You know, they see that Russia has had enough time to lay a lot of mines. How difficult is it for Ukraine to, to, to punch through these very strong minefields? Christian, I'm responsible for the industry only. So for me, I would say that it's a challenge to build up the industry almost from the scratch because we got a legacy uh, defense industry coming from Soviet times. But again, it was almost idle for the last few decades. So we are starting almost from the scratch, but we already show that we can be good, quite creative and quite hardworking. So for, in, for instance, in defense tech, in something that flies, goes on the ground, goes on the water, we call it unmanned systems, drones. So in this defense tech uh, industry, we showed that we could be quite good and we could grow the production. And uh, you see that lessons learned from Ukrainian defense tech could be useful for US and for other countries as well. So again, it's complicated, but we find the way through and we keep standing. Ukraine was incredibly united at the beginning of the war, and you're probably seeing it, we're reading it. There seems to be some, some divisions and, and, and you know, friction growing within the various different centers of government. Do you feel that, or do you feel that everybody is still on the same page, uh, united in how to fight this war? Ukraine is a democratic country, so all voices are heard. And uh, I must say that speaking about defense industry, all voices are united that Ukrainian defense industry is something we're going to build in years and it's something that's going to be our security uh, guarantee and uh, something that already works as the locomotive for economic recovery. So that's why we're working hard with Ukraine, with Ukrainian and U.S. defense industry companies to make it grow. Mm -hmm. And just lastly, you said you, you believe this supplemental will eventually come through. What do you need? What, you know, you're, the, you're, the, you're the procurement man, the strategic industry man. What do you need most right now? Is it more air defenses for the winter? Is it to try to speed up aircraft, fighter aircraft? What do you need right now? 
Our priorities are quite simple. First of all, that's air defense. Second is ammunition. And third is sustainment of those systems we already have. So that's how we focus with U.S. defense industries. And uh, that's what we work out uh, primarily. Alexander Kamishin, Minister of Strategic uh, Industries, thank you very much for joining us from Washington. And so as Washington delays aid, it's vital not to lose sight of the realities of Putin's brutal war and the devastating cost to civilians. The Pulitzer Prize-winning Ukrainian journalist, Mstislav Chernov, witnessed the start of Russia's full-scale invasion from the first city to be destroyed. That was Mariupol. He and his small team were the only eyewitnesses to stay for a lengthy time. And here's a clip from his new film, 20 Days in Mariupol. This is painful to watch, but it must be painful to watch. And the documentary is making a big impact at film festivals, is developing some major Oscar buzz as Ukraine has officially entered it for the Academy Awards. When Mr. Slav Chernov joined me recently here in London, he was adamant that the world cannot afford to look away now. And Mr. Slav Chernov joins me now. Welcome to the program. In some of the voiceover, you say, because the film obviously focuses, like many of you know, our work on civilians and on the distress yeah. caused to civilians. Yeah. You say, note to editors, graphic content. This is painful. This is painful to watch, but it must be painful to watch. Uh, that's the nature. If we don't report everything as it is, if we don't show to people across the world, to our viewers, to our audience, uh, the reality of war, it becomes acceptable. We, it's, it's a big danger not exposing the war for all its brutality, for all its absurd. And if, if it's polished, if it's sanitized, then it's acceptable. And that's, that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. Immediately there was an information disinformation war. Immediately the Russians said these are actors, these are, this is, you know, Ukrainians shooting themselves and blowing themselves up. How did you deal with that? Or did you even know that was happening? When I saw this horror that happened in, in maternity hospital this, after the bombing, I, I knew that it would be such an important story. And I already knew that it's going to be contested, questioned. And I knew that as journalists, we shouldn't try to fight any of that. We just keep working. That's the only way. And let me put, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the clips, because it is the clip that essentially went around the world of the woman being carried out of the maternity hospital. Let's just watch this for a moment. So I see you watching and, and essentially you're back there. Yeah, I'm, I don't even have to watch. I remember every moment. 
every drop of blood. But I want to say that that's exactly why we need documentaries. First, it adds very, very necessary context, a part of news, which are very short form. The context give viewers and an audience possibility to, uh, to make their own judgments. And also with all the horrifying and very important tragedies that are happening uh, when we are bombarded by them every day, uh, these important stories are just lost. Mm -hmm. So the only way to preserve a memory of, of Irina, of Evangelina, of Ilya, Kirill, all those children have died, uh, is to make a film about it. So to be sure that the memory is there. Did she survive? No, no. no. And no and her child has also died. Yeah. So what do you want to leave the world with, particularly as the world appears to be taking its eye off Ukraine? Look, I have a, I have a feeling, I have a feeling that when I'm on the ground in Ukraine, we, we, I monitor Russian news as well, and I monitor Ukraine news and the world news, and I frequently come to US and, and Europe to, to speak to the audiences. And one thing, one thing I, I've started to notice, first of all, everything is connected. And although very different conflicts, Israel, Gaza, and, 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 and Russia attacking Ukraine, they are universal stories, but contextually uh, they are different and complex, although again connected. But also I have a feeling that a lot of people in the West don't really realize what, how Russia sees the West and the, this whole war right now. You see, Russia has bil is building its policy, its ideology right now, since it full-scale invasion, as uh, they are at war with US and with Europe. So imagine this, the Russian government and majority of Russian people right now are at war with Europe mm -hmm. and US. They're fighting with the Ukrainians, but the core ideology they have is they are at war. And I feel that that's not really coming through, and it's very dangerous. So do you find this is resonating with the audiences? What do the audience say to you at festivals? And I know, you've, you know there's a big Oscar push as well. Uh, surprisingly, I thought Ukraine going to resonate less in, in the last several months as a new big and dramatic conflict in the Middle East is, is raging. But actually, especially a story of Mariupol, because of, of its symbolism, because of its similar visual and, and uh, dramatic similarity to what is happening right now, uh, actually uh, gains even more meaning now. So people realize more and more that the world around them changed and they have to react. The, 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 the worst thing that could people do now is to be indifferent. And this certainly, certainly is not a film you can be indifferent about. Mrs. Slavchernov, thank you very much. Director of 20 Days in Mariupol. It's a really powerful, it's one of the best war films that I've ever seen. So congratulations. Indeed it is. It's must-viewing, in fact. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Next, from making music in his childhood bedroom to now selling out arenas, the five-time Grammy-winning musician Jacob Collier became a star with his virtuoso arrangements, name-checked by legends like Quincy Jones and Herbie Hancock. His prodigious and complex style sees him layer sound upon sound, including his own voice, to create cathedrals of music. Just take a listen to one of his latest singles, Well. Now this kind of one-man band is set to release the fourth and final installment of his Digis albums. I've been speaking to him about making the whole world his instrument. Jacob Collier, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So tell me what you think it was or why did they tell you that they noticed you and they are the great you know, musical producers, uh, Quincy Jones, and then of course the great musician Herbie Hancock. What was it about you? Oh gosh, it's a hard question for me to answer no. as me. Um, I think when I came into the world, I, my ambitions were not to be a huge star, not to be a really famous musician. I just wanted to make the most beautiful work I could possibly imagine. And somehow I think that those intentions shone through the work and refreshed someone like Quincy Jones. I mean, Quincy has seen everybody across the face of the earth in, in many different walks of life. And I don't know, I feel extremely lucky that somehow he saw a spark in me and thought this person could, could do some interesting things. And not just interesting, very, very different. So your latest album uh, is called Jesse, and yeah. it's a, I mean, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, That's but it's correct. a spin so on yeah. your initials, JC. Yeah. So when I was a kid, my friends used to call me JC. Is that my, my nickname? And yeah, I've, I've sort of seeked, oh, I've sought to create this, this massive quadruple album. So Jesse is a four album project. Volume one, volume two, volume three have all come out. And this is the era of Volume 4, which is a really long-awaited era for me personally. It's really the culmination of 
many, many things I've been working towards and care about. And it's a very, very richly collaborative album. It's a global album, and I'm really excited. One of the songs, you have Stormzy on it. Mm. Uh, you have Shawn Mendes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's called Witness Me. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The thing that I think is really, for me anyway, fascinating is that this one you say is about the human voice. The mm. others have been. R&B, jazz, folk, etc. This is about the human voice. Mm. And that's your thing, right? That's how you started. I've been reflecting a lot on how I began my journey as a musician. And the first instrument I ever really played was my voice. And the thing about the voice is everybody has one and everyone is different. And that's beautiful to me. That's so important. And I started my journey as a musician recording sort of a cappella, heavily layered a cappella renditions of songs I loved. And that concept of you know, many voices at once really defined my fascination in the early days. And, and then more recently, I've just become obsessed with this idea, but on a global scale. So I've been touring around the world, playing, playing concerts and collaborating with all sorts of different kinds of people. And the thing that I find in all situations that really hits the spot for me and really feels like the centerpiece of what this album is about and what maybe what I'm here to do at this moment in time is to really give people a voice, you know, lift up voices, unify voices. And that just feels like a powerful feeling and, and most, it, it's the most goosebumps I've ever experienced. So, so to be fair, every singer uses their voice, but yeah. you do yours in a very, very different way. I'm gonna play a little clip from uh, Isn't She Lovely, which is one you did very early, which kind of demonstrates, sure, I think, sure. what you mean. Isn't she lovely? I see you rocking to it. I haven't heard that for years. Yeah, and you're so young. How old were you there? I was 17, 18 when 17. I made that video. Okay. So that was very, very, very early days. But what I was interested in was how can my voice be many different voices, you know? How can I be the bass singer? How can I be the top? There's a pro, you know? And, and tell a story that feels compelling, authentic. I've always been so interested in chords, like the, the magic that happens when you put multiple notes together. You know, in, in music, we call this harmony, you know, one of the main principles of music. And I think harmony is not just a musical concept, it's a human concept. Harmony is what happens when, when different forces, different energies come together and, and create like a sort of synergy between themselves. So you can say the chord of D major seven, you know, or G dominant seven. These chords have a sensation, a feeling about them. But when they exist in the world, in people and for people, I think they can really remind us why we're here as people. And, and can you give me an example of that? Yeah, well, well so, uh, I mean, there, there are so many levels to understanding chords and, and harmonies and, and, and melodies. You, you could think of, 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 of music as being created from three basic principles. There's the principle of rhythm, which is time, decorating time in the body. There's the concept of melody, which is essentially your voice and how you use it, your, your, the line you draw. And then there's the concept of harmony, which is what happens when those elements combine and they create chords, passages, sensations. And it's almost like you're a painter when you're a harmonist. You get to decide, how do I want this melody to feel? So for example, if I sing like a C, that's a C, that note begin, that, that note belongs in, say the chord of F, right? Those three notes are F major, but it also 
uh, is invited to the chord of A flat. Doo, doo, doo. So different flavor. So it's hard <laughs> to explain it just with one voice, but the idea is one note can exist in so many different kinds of chords. And what an amazing lesson to learn as a human, as a musician, when you go about this. You say this one note can be this to this chord, can be completely this other thing to this other chord. And the amazing thing about music is that it's a language everybody can understand. Yeah, but it, it is a language everybody can at least appreciate. Actually, mm. I'm just looking down and I see you wearing Crocs. You've got a pair of yellow oh, yeah, Crocs on. This, yeah. Okay, yellow, those are the Ukrainian flag. I don't know whether you intended yeah, it. Put them sure. right up, oh, then everybody yeah, can see it. There you go, yeah, yellow. Yeah, okay, <laughs> but you, one of your sessions, and I think you call it logic sessions, the sort of the layer upon layer mm. upon layer upon layer, you show a spectrogram of a croc, yeah. and that spectrogram produces a sound. Yeah. It's a, a human croc. So explain that, the croc, the sound, the layers. Um, I've always been just interested in how far you can stretch certain concepts. Um, one of the things that, one of the tools you use as a musician when you're sculpting music, creating music is what's called a spectrogram. It's like a graph. So you have high frequencies at the top and then low frequencies at the bottom. And every sound in your song exists on this graph. So if I go, then it will go like this, yeah. right? And all the overtones as well. And so I had this idea, silly idea, but I, it's a fun idea, of drawing a picture in a spectrogram of a, of a recognizable object and seeing how it sounded. So I basically put this on my computer screen and, I, and then I played it to see how it, how it would look. I found, I found some kind of a, a, a converter where I put the image in and out came this crazy sound. And I thought, I kind of like that, I'm gonna put it in my song. See, you know, that's like double Dutch for me, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who understand. And I, I, ex I appreciate the finished product, well, thanks. but, it's, <laughs> Great, it's, really but it's really difficult to understand it for the layperson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you self-taught? Um, I would say fundamentally, yes. I had many teachers along the way. Um, mostly my heroes were my teachers, people I listened to. My mother was an incredible, incredible teacher to me. Tell me about your mother, because she was a is a musician. Yeah, yeah, she's a, f a phenomenal force of nature. She's, she's a conductor, a violinist, and one of the most gifted teachers I've ever seen um, growing up in the world, you know, as as any child does, you know, you look up at the world and you see these, these people, these elders, and you think, well, this is how life can be. And my first musical memories were of my, my mother conducting an orchestra, you know, so she would go like this, and then the music would start. I think that is like, it's like casting a spell, you know. I think, wow, that's what music can do. It's not just about, oh, is it the right or the wrong notes? That doesn't matter. It's about how does it feel? And are you bringing yourself to it, you know? And just the, the, her, her ability to to get magic out of people is a phenomenal gift. And it's something I'm so grateful for having been in, in, in the light of for so, so, so long. So you take that sort of orchestral conducting phenomenon and you conduct, you call them choirs, but they're actually your audience is mm. really in various concerts. Uh, there's one that we have um, some, some video and sound of, which I'm gonna play. Were you in Bangalore, you were in India? No, that was just last week I was yeah. in Bangalore. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's cute, let's have a look. <laughs> Fulsome sound is the audience. Yeah, that, that's all you're hearing is just two and a half thousand people. And the, the magic. How do they know the, the tune? This is the magic of it. So I'm essentially, well, 
I'm pointing up and down to different sections and using my eyes and being clear. Um, having created like a harmonic center. So I, I basically say, oh, here, we're here. I don't say this with words. I say, I, I play. I play and, and so people understand where the chords are. It's, it's, it sounds complex in words. It's actually very simple. You think this is where you're in this key. And then I move sex, sections of the audience up and down and they, they, they know where to go because music is inherent. Music is understood internally in ways that we don't really understand. And a lot of the time when you learn music, you, know, you think you have to learn from books or from stuffy classrooms or textbooks or things like this. But actually music is just in the world all the time. Everybody understands major and minor. Everybody understands big and small. Everybody understands yes and no. And it's these simple gestures that create sounds like that. And I've traveled to every corner of the world, whether it's to India, China, Australia, New Zealand, South America, all over America, Europe, and, and even Africa. And, and the, the magical thing about that is that it always works. And what do you get back from it? It's clear what they do. Oh, it's, it's my favorite feeling in the world because I'm, I'm both big and also very small at the same time because I'm not singing. I'm only enabling other people's voices. And if I really think about my purpose and my presence in the world at this moment for me, that feels like the best job I could be doing is to say, hey, here's a space for you to sing and be your biggest and most uncontainable self. And I'm, I'm here as a, as a conduit to, just to give you that permission to, to try. We're all in a horrible situation right now. I think everybody's mm. traumatized by what's happening in the world. Mm. Do you feel this is, has a bridge building? I don't know, is there something healing or something, you know, metaphysical mm. that mm. you can get even in the worst and worst of times? I think it's a question many of us are asking at the moment. You know, all of us who absorb the world in our various ways, I think it's easy for us to feel overwhelmed because there are a lot of problems that don't have clear solutions. Mm -hmm. And um, in situations like that, I think... Artists, musicians and creators, though it may seem trite, they come into their own because they are the master alchemists at transforming any amount of, any amount of hardship and struggle, questions, um, and, and also joy and connection and hope and all this stuff, alchemizing all that into something that means something and something that allows people a space to feel. And, you know, it's easy to look around and think, gosh, what, what could I possibly do to help? And then you remember that if you just align with who you are, and you see the world as you see the world, and you try to learn as much as you can from all perspectives about what's going on right now, and you just tell the truth from your perspective, it's all, it's all that anybody could ever do. And I think music, as I said before, is just one of the most beautiful languages at saying, well, even beyond saying, showing how connective the world can be, when we realize we're all the same, and we realize that we have so much in common and so much to, to, to celebrate. I was also interested in, in reading, you said how much of an influence your mother was, but also mm. your siblings, I think sisters, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So you essentially grew up in an all-female environment. Yes, I'm very, I'm very proud of that. And I think that it's given me a, a huge amount of, um, of access to particular ways of seeing the world, um, softer ways, more open ways, perhaps. Uh, I think that my family are incredibly strong and courageous and brilliant people. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it's an astounding um, privilege to grow up in, in a world through the eyes of, the, where you've seen the world through the eyes of, of women. And I was pretty shocked and surprised when I entered the music industry as a novice, not really thinking about myself as having a career, but as someone who wanted to make things, thinking, well, don't see many women in charge. You know, are there women producing music? Are there, are there women creating, you know, the, the gates through which people are walking? And I think there's a lot of work to be done there. But one thing I've learned from just collaborating with so many extraordinary women in the last few years is just how vital those vantage points can be in this world. Um, and I, it makes me feel, in a sense, quite at home because it's, it's how I felt as a kid. It's like, 
I, I can get on this wavelength. You know, we're, we're, we're looking with open eyes and open hearts at, at, at how each of us and all of us can learn together and, and as, as a team, you know. Any women you're going to be collaborating with? Like, for instance, on Jesse, you've got, as I mentioned many times, Stormzy and the others. Yes, a, a, a terrific number. I can't, uh, I can't disclose this information <laughs> just yet because I want to save the surprise. But, um, but yes, I, I've, I've been very inspired and, and thrilled to collaborate with many, many women in this album um, and, and in and around the, the campaign. And, and uh, yes, it's a, it's a brilliant time to be a creative person in many ways, even though it's confusing and strange. It's a, it's a time where I'm looking around the world and seeing many walls and barriers being broken down, straight up ignored. Just like, well, we're just going to make the thing that feels good. We're, we're going to go and be courageous. And, and I, I'm really encouraged at the, the fearlessness of my peers, um, old and young, and, and just looking around at the world and seeing the kinds of things that are possible with the, with the amount of connectivity that, that, is, that is at our fingertips. But I do think all these forces can be used to divide as much as they can be used to unite and I will just continue to do everything in my power to use my forces for good, you know. And just finally, after Jesse Volume 4, what's next? Oh, gosh, I haven't even thought that far ahead. Um, it's been so many years in the making. I'm, I'm really excited to, to, do more, to do more performing, do more touring. I'll be touring next year and, and, um, and sort of spreading all these, these, this, the seeds of this album into the world. And I have so many big and wild ideas for the next few years, but I think in some ways my, my greatest challenge will just be to be present in the world and to keep open in the world. It's a, it's a hard thing to stay open yeah. in the world. There's so many things that shut us down, yeah. so many forces at play in, in all walks of life, who, no matter who you are. Yeah. So I think for me, I, I'll feel like I've really done it. I've really achieved it if I can just stay open for as long as I possibly can and, and keep on giving in, in the ways that I know how. Well, Jacob Collier, thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Really a whole new vision and take on the world through the eyes of Jacob Collier and his huge talent. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now, it's all about education, of course, as well. And higher education has become a flashpoint in the American culture wars and a prime target for government downsizers. So it was no surprise when West Virginia University announced plans to slash majors and cut courses in order to shrink its budget. But what does that actually mean for the students who are seeking a reasonably priced education? Atlantic magazine writer Michael Powell joins Michelle Martin to discuss his latest article, What Happens When a Poor state cuts its public university. Thanks, Christian. Michael Powell, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, my pleasure. So you decided to take a deeper look at the big cuts implemented at West Virginia University, uh, cuts to language programs, math programs, a bunch of degree granting programs. What made you take a look at it? I was struck when it came out that, um, I, I mean, of course, like everybody, by the breadth and depth of the cuts, um, but also that, you know, I mean, I'm familiar enough with West Virginia to know, I mean, this is a kind of a working class um, state um, that's had, you know, all sorts of um, problems. I mean, you know, 
diabetes, drug use, rapidly aging population, loss of youth. And this felt um, like a, you know, I mean, it, it, I guess in that way, it felt like a deep blow and, and something worth really looking at. And also because you're hearing increasingly of both uh, public and private colleges that are making these sort of um, very deep cuts. And I guess lastly, I mean, because it is, there are so many kind of first generation and working class students at this place. It, I thought it did raise interesting questions of, um, of equity. You know, what happens um, when a school that, that serves the kind of larger sweep of America or of, or of West Virginia makes these sort of cuts? What happens to opportunities? So the thing that got a lot of people's attention is the cuts to the language programs. They're really shrinking the modern language department to the point where most people won't be able to get an advanced degree in those languages. Is That's kind of the reality of it. But what are some of the other cuts that perhaps didn't get as much attention initially? I mean, there was pu public health. There was graduate programs in math. There are graduate programs in conservation management. Um, education, um, administration, English uh, took some cuts. One of the things that I was kind of struck by is they literally could not uh, offer Shakespeare classes this um, spring, you know, either in either the fall or the spring semester, because they were too uh, too badly stretched. So I mean, these these cuts, you know, kind of extended over a pretty broad broad range of areas. So you actually had a chance to interview the president of West Virginia University, E. Gordon G. Um, he talked about this back in 2020. He kind of laid out his goal here. And I do want to mention that uh, that he has a pretty extensive background in university uh, administration. I mean, he's led, you know, marquee institutions like Ohio State, uh, Brown. He's 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 been around. So what is it that he said was wrong that this strategy is designed to fix. His argument is that there is this uh, demographic cliff that universities are approaching in the next couple of years. Uh, that is where you see declining birth rate and fewer kids of uh, college age. So you're going to see fewer and fewer of them applying to universities and that this is going to lead to a real, his favorite word is existential crisis uh, for higher education. He also points to um, polls both nationally and in within West Virginia that show declining confidence uh, by the citizenry at large in the, the need for uh, higher education. Um, you know, the, where it used to be in the, say, mid 60s, 70 percent. Now, I think he points to polls that show it as low as like 25, 30 percent. Uh, and he says, look, you know, the, the combination of these things require, you know, if you will, a tsunami that's approaching. We need to get ready for that um, and and therefore that we need to both cut and at the same time we need to kind of serve as he he loves to talk about his, his students and families as customers that we have to kind of customize the education uh, for them so we don't want to have as many required courses we want to be able to let them take other courses we want more and this is where it gets a little contradictory at the same time, kind of targeted on health, 
uh, business, engineering, uh, things that will, he says, um, serve the economy of West Virginia. You know, we've heard lots of criticisms of universities in, in recent years that they're too expensive, that they don't serve the economy's needs, that they are elitist, you know, that they basically are, they're doing too much. Are, are Mr. G's, President G's objections that there's a market mismatch, that, that, that students are coming out unprepared for the opportunities that exist and that that's a problem? Or is it, is it that it, primarily economic, that the state can't afford it? Or is it primarily ideological, that he doesn't like what the kids are t teaching or coming out and thinking? He certainly does not frame it in ideological terms. He argues a bit of a mismatch. Um, he's talked a lot about the need to keep these students um, in in state, um, and you know, and to match them up better with uh, with jobs in the state. It gets a little confusing because at some point, I mean, West Virginia's economy is in a bad way. Um, it lacks, you know, basic. I mean, there's a great shortage of math teachers, which makes it rather ironic that they're cutting their math program back. Um, there's, you know, there's a shortage of biology teachers. I mean, there's there's shortages kind of a, across the board. And it seems to me within a place like West Virginia, certainly this is something that critics talk about is it's great to try as much as one can to keep students in state. But at some level, if you're, again, serving the needs of those those kids, you're going to allow their aspirations to take them where they might. And as one of the young women that I was talking to um, who's, you know, looking, wants to work for the Foreign Service. Uh, and she took a lot of language, you know, a lot of language study, a lot of foreign study. You know, maybe she does leave. Maybe she comes back 20 years, 30 years from now and teaches at, you know, WVU. I guess what I was struck by looking at is it's not so linear, right? It's not like, well, you know, if we come up with a way to keep this young person here now at the age of 21, they'll be here when they're 50. Or if they go away when they're 21, they won't come back in 15 or 20 years if there are the opportunities there. So obviously you're skeptical of his approach, but let's sort of take it at face value. He says that that the this is a public university. It depends on public dollars and it just needs to be in better alignment with the needs of the state and to be a better steward of the state's resources. I mean, you point out in your piece that, you know, most state legislatures are spending less per student than a decade ago. Um, throughout higher education, total student enrollment is declining. So doesn't doesn't he have a point there? Well, he might. I mean, the, the, the thing is that actually state universities, um, flagship universities in particular, are actually better positioned than a lot of privates. I mean, if you wanted to, if I did the same piece on a good, small, little private university in West Virginia or in, in anywhere else, they might well be facing kind of existential problems, right? They don't have the endowments of an Ivy League school or a Stanford or something like that. Their tuition runs 65, 75,000 a year. You know, there you've got a real problem. 
West Virginia University, you can still go soup to nuts for about 22000 a year. It's one of the lowest, and that is that includes room and board. So that, that's one of the lower um, price tags. In fact, perhaps the very lowest for a state university in the country. One could counter that actually a state university like West Virginia, like Kentucky, which is a neighbor next door, like Ohio, which is a neighbor next door, where they've seen increasing enrollment, um, that those places are sort of uniquely well positioned to survive a, you know, a, a, a demographic and enrollment uh, decline nationally. Some of the programs that are being cut would seem to be ones that the state actually does need. I mean, you've pointed out that made, he made deep cuts to the math department, but the, there's a shortage of math teachers in the state, as there is really in most places around the country. So that's one thing. But then also in education administration, I mean, education is another thing that the state really needs. But the other thing that you pointed out is this this, this little quirky program in puppetry, which that you, you, you know, took pains to highlight. And you said that they've had a hundred percent postgraduate employment going back for years and that some of these, the, the, the graduates go on to work at, you know, major companies like it entertainment and Disney and all these other sort of places. So one of the sources of skepticism that I detected from your piece is that you thought, well, gee, if you really want to match sort of the need with the, the educational experience, that would seem to be some of that would be counterintuitive. Presumably you put that question to President G. What did he say? He keeps saying that, look, these are the sort of tough choices we have to make. I kept looking for it to hold together. So wait a minute. You know, we're, we're cutting. We're trying to aim at, for instance, meeting the needs of West Virginia. Fine. I mean, it's a um, economically, you know, kind of storm tossed state. It needs help. But again, so you're you're you want to increase your engineering program uh, that he wants to wants to put money into that. He wants to he's putting big money into a neuroscience center. But at the same time, he's cutting his math graduate program, um, I, you know, and, and, and there's an interplay between those. And if you're a if you're a top neuroscience student, um, and, and there's a lot of competition, uh, you know, from schools that are in, um, you know, major cities and that sort of thing. It seems to me paradoxical that you would cut programs that are, if you will, kind of cousin or adjacent programs. Uh, and, and I didn't. I didn't really get a good answer for, uh, from him on that. Talk about sort of your skepticism for a, a bit. What do you really think is going on here? Like you, 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 you kind of, this is, there's, a, there's the subtext to this. And what do you think the subtext is? Is it that, that he, this sort of a suspicion that, you know, th this is not for you? That you're, you know, as a, if you grow up in West Virginia, if you go to school there, then you're not supposed to have nice things. I mean, what's, you, you know, I mean, What's what's the subtext here? Yeah, I think that is the implicit question there is, well, what are we saying? So if you're at the if you're born in Los Angeles or San Francisco and you have you can access the University of California system, which is, you know, a, a pretty magnificent educational uh, edifice. I mean, it has its problems, but it, it's a you know, it, it offers 
a great buffet of, of courses and schools to go to. And if you're from West Virginia, you're going to have a greatly telescoped um, um, sort of set of choices. And I do think that that raises real questions. I mean, if this is public, you know, the, the public university system, and I'm myself a product of it, um, is a, you know is a, I think is one of our one of our glories, and it's not been um, so class stratified, right? Where I mean, the, the notion is that if you go to a state university, you can get you can feel your brain come afire, and I think that it's it's worth worrying um, when a state university system, as President Key is, you know has done and here has decided to kind of, well, pull in its fangs. And, and I guess that was one of the things that's striking, you know, West Virginia right now is a very large budget uh, surplus. Um, you know, why not put some of that, you know, some of that energy into getting a little bit more money so that you get, you know, from the, from the state legislature, take your case to the people and try to sell them on what is a great American ideal, which is the land grant university, a place where you don't have to be rich uh, or upper middle class to get, um, to get a, you know, to really have a chance to getting a fine education and a fine education in a way of, you know, and again, I was struck in talking to a number of these first generation students that, you know, they came there thinking, oh, I'm going to major in something practical. You know, I'm going to be a, a business or this or that. And like all of a sudden they got there and like they realized, oh, linguistics, you know, that that rocks my world. Well, it so happens linguistics also is very much in demand in AI right now. It seemed to me in a very moving way, kind of the best opportunities that a public education can offer middle and working class kids. So presumably you put that question to the president and like, what do you think it's really about? He's long written about this demographic cliff. I think he sees himself um, as a visionary. I know he sees himself as a visionary and that when all of these other state universities are having problems, um, West Virginia uh, University, after he will have left, because he's going to leave in the next year or two, he says, um, will be positioned to survive in a very kind of practical and utilitarian way. Um, maybe. The problem is, I mean, when I looked at University of Kentucky, when I looked at the University of Arkansas, places with pretty similar demographic profiles to that of West Virginia, their enrollment is is soaring. Uh, I mean, they're they're adding classes, they're adding professors. So if nothing else, I guess he's um, he's made a petri dish of West Virginia University um, in that we're going to see if, you know, if this works, um, you know, I in the short run, I think it leaves students with um, some hollowed out programs. Does this go beyond West Virginia University? Do you think there's a bigger issue out here that we should be thinking about that West Virginia University just exemplifies as opposed to is kind of the whole story? Is there a bigger story out here that we should be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I think there's been there's been a lot of obviously incoming fire directed at um, universities in the last 10 or 15 years both from left and right, actually. Um, 
And, you know, and I I think those are I mean, that is the, if you will, sort of the the overarching, uh, you know, umbrella under which some of this, some of what's going on in West Virginia um, is going forward with. And you are seeing I don't want to make it entirely about West Virginia. I mean, you have a university, State University of New York at Potsdam and far northern New York that's made some, you know, very, very um, uh, deep cuts in programs, cut out all sorts of what would have been thought of as essential majors. You've seen this in North Dakota. You've seen it in Missouri. Um, So you have you have a real challenge there. And you also have a challenge, I think, in getting, as alluded to you, you have a challenge in getting um, parents and citizens of of the of these states to understand the value uh of a college education and i guess that's what um i'm struck by one of one of the things i'm struck by in west virginia is that from the president to the governor to the head of the legislatures to the provost everyone's just sort of taking it <laughs> you know the, the starting point is we We've lost the confidence of people. We're not going to get that. Enrollment's going to decline. And and therefore, we need to kind of manage decline. We need to manage decline with a few sharp programs there. And that seems to me to represent both in West Virginia and in some of these other states a real um, a real pressing issue. Michael Powell, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks very much. And so often humanities and the arts are the victims of these slashing cuts. Arts and humanities are not luxuries, they're vital, especially as we learn finally tonight in times marred by division and hate, when today the world paid tribute to someone who dedicated his life to advocating for love, humanity, and the transformational power of words. The British Caribbean poet, musician, and actor, Benjamin Zephania has died at 65 after suffering from a brain tumor. He was the son of Windrush immigrants. He was known for his fearless campaigning and radical poetry. Zephania left school in Birmingham, unable to read or write, but later became a titan of British literature. And we want to leave you tonight with an extract from one of his beloved poems. It goes like this. People need people to walk to, to talk to, to cry and rely on. People will always need people to love and to miss, to hug and to kiss. It's useful to have other people. To whom to moan if you're all alone? It's so hard to share when no one is there. There's not much to do when there's no one but you. People will always need people. And that could not be more important as a message than today. And a quick programming note, on Saturday, you can watch the Amanpour Hour from 11 a.m. on America's East Coast and 5 p.m. in Central Europe. And we'll bring context, conversation, and analysis of our world with newsmakers, cultural icons, and the best of CNN in the field. I'm also taking your questions about events that shape our future. So scan the QR code on your screen or email askamanpour at cnn.com. The Amanpour Hour airs Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central Europe, only here on CNN. That's it for now. Thanks for watching. Goodbye from London.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.